0: Dr. Saval is the Associate Director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Maimonides Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York. He also is an Assistant Professor of Medicine at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email
1: info at sccm.org. Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast, recorded Friday, March 3rd, 2006. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Savell. In today's podcast, we will discuss an article from the February edition of Critical Connections, which focuses on trauma in the intensive care unit. Michael Cheatham, MD, FCCM, Director of the Surgical Trauma Intensive Care Unit at Orlando Regional Medical Center in Florida, contributed an article entitled, consensus definitions for intra-abdominal hypertension and abdominal compartment syndrome. Dr. Cheatham has studied the impact of elevated intra-abdominal pressures for over a decade. He is also the current vice president of the World Society of the Abdominal Compartment Syndrome, and he is with us today to discuss intra-abdominal hypertension and the Abdominal Compartment Syndrome. Good afternoon, Michael, and thanks for joining us.
2: Well, good afternoon. Thank you for having me.
1: I thought we'd begin and... Uh, As I was discussing with you previously, I I am an internist working in a surgical ICU for the past few years, so this comes up very frequently in my life, and uh, I'm excited to be able to speak with you about it. And so I thought we'd begin by letting you talk about some of the recent consensus uh, on the definition of intra-abdominal hypertension, as well as the uh, abdominal compartment syndrome, and maybe uh, separate the two a little bit. I know they're related, but not identical, and to share with the members of SCCM about some of those issues.
2: Certainly. Certainly. Uh, it's important to keep in mind in, in all of the discussion that we're going to have today that this is clearly a diagnosis, uh, a clinical entity that is uh, in process. Uh, our understanding of intra-abdominal hypertension, that is increased intra-abdominal pressure, and abdominal compartment syndrome, which is basically intra-abdominal hypertension plus organ failure, um, are still... Uh, Two clinical entities that are very much in their infancy in our understanding. Um, We've actually just in the the last few weeks uh, been in a a very um, significant debate as to exactly how we're going to continue to define these as we learn more and more about the uh, pathophysiology surrounding each entity.
1: Um, I guess you'll talk more about the debate later, but maybe we could just start out having you uh, describe uh, intra-abdominal hypertension, the consensus definitions.
2: Sure. Intra-abdominal hypertension, and I I should begin by noting that all of these um, definitions are available on the World Society on Abdominal Compartment Syndrome website, which is http www.wsacs.org. But we define intra-abdominal hypertension now Uh, as an increased intra-abdominal pressure above uh, 12 millimeters of mercury uh, on two separate measurements uh, conducted four to six hours apart. Uh, The corollary to that is, and we'll get into this a little bit later, abdominal perfusion pressure. And that is the difference between uh, mean arterial pressure and intra-abdominal pressure. Uh, and the abdominal perfusion pressure needs to be uh, greater than or equal to 60 millimeters of mercury uh, on two separate measurements. So you either have a, an elevated intraabdominal pressure or you have inadequate perfusion to the abdominal contents uh, as the definition of intraabdominal hypertension.
1: And then uh, maybe uh, focusing a little bit on the abdominal compartment syndrome definitions, which are slightly different.
2: Sure. Uh, As I mentioned earlier, abdominal compartment syndrome is basically symptomatic intra-abdominal hypertension. That is, you have elevated intra-abdominal pressures which are impeding renal venous outflow and uh, mesenteric outflow, portal vein blood flow. Uh, And as a result of those increased pressures, we're now beginning to see organ failure. Most commonly, uh, decreased urinary output uh, but it can also be manifested by changes in pulmonary physiology, either hypercarbia or hypoxemia, or it can be manifested by low blood pressure. So if one has an intra-abdominal pressure greater than 20 millimeters of mercury or an abdominal perfusion pressure of less than 60, that is inadequate uh, perfusion at the organ level, that is the current definition of abdominal compartment syndrome.
1: And I remember um, both from reading material you've written and my own experience as a surgical intensivist uh, working with the house staff, this is a clinical syndrome, right? You're taking care of a patient after surgery, high filling pressures, high peak airway pressures, low blood pressure, low urine output, check a bladder pressure, right? And I remember there's so many interesting things to talk about, but maybe starting out by, uh, you were mentioning, I guess, even a year or so ago, that maybe having... Having bladder pressures ro- checked routinely in all patients, uh, maybe as a vital sign?
2: Well, certainly th- there's a whole list of, of um, disease processes that can predispose a patient to developing intra-abdominal hypertension and abdominal compartment syndrome. And so I, I think it's important for um, all members of a multidisciplinary ICU uh, team to be cognizant of these so that when they see a patient that meets any of these categories, that at least they consider the possibility that they might need to measure intra-abdominal pressure, and most most commonly that's done using the bladder. And so we may use bladder pressure interchangeably as a term today, but one needs to have a very low threshold for measuring intra-abdominal pressure. The clinical ability of a a physician or nurse or anyone to palpate someone's abdomen and determine whether the pressure is elevated is less than 50% in three separate studies. So you might as well flip a coin uh, if you're going to depend upon physical exam. You really have to measure the pressure in the abdomen to be able to find this. Just the fact that the patient has a soft abdomen can be very misleading. So one has to have a low threshold for measuring the pressures, and then one of the things that many of us are trying to emphasize is that you need to follow the bladder pressures over time. Uh, So serial intra-abdominal pressure measurements are essential uh, because patients are constantly changing. Their whole illness is dynamic. And even though you may have a low pressure to begin with, it may subsequently increase as the patient becomes more septic or the patient continues to bleed or their ARDS gets worse.
1: A couple other areas that I wanted to focus on with you. Um, First, just to define the different categories, and I know this is all on your website, there's primary, secondary, and tertiary, and just sort of as a, a painting the background for our listeners, primary, usually post-surgical, secondary in a situation such as sepsis, and then tertiary if it's happening even after they've already had their primary surgical procedure done. And a couple of the questions that I had for you were, if you could talk maybe for a little bit about, are there are there common types of surgery other than just sort of saying abdominal surgery, that this may happen. And secondly, I know that you've been involved in some important work recently that you don't ever have to have had surgery to develop this syndrome. And this comes up quite a bit in my life, where you'll often be taking care of a patient who may have had surgery but not abdominal surgery, and yet they're starting to act like they're having the abdominal compartment syndrome from a clinical standpoint. And maybe if you could address some of those issues.
2: Certainly. Uh, I think this is perhaps one of the most important and exciting uh, parts of abdominal compartment syndrome right now, they're in the early infancy of abdominal compartment syndrome back in the late 90s as we were just beginning to get our our hands around this, this disease. We were under the impression that the only way to treat this was by opening the abdomen. We now recognize that that was probably using a sledgehammer to kill a fly. Not every patient needs to be opened and have an open abdomen because there's obviously morbidity and mortality associated with that. It's a, It can be a life-saving procedure, but it's really primarily appropriate for the patients who develop primary abdominal compartment syndrome. And these are typically... Yeah. Uh, Patients, as you've said, who have had abdominal surgery, uh, patients with trauma, patients who have had, for example, a ruptured abdominal aortic aneurysm uh, and develop a significant uh, uh, visceral or retroperitoneal edema, patients who have uh, become um, critically ill as a result of intraabdominal sepsis. Those are the most common uh, entities that would lead to primary abdominal compartment syndrome, primary because the etiology is within the abdomen. These are the patients that you typically have to open as the only way to be able to decrease the pressure and be able to restore blood flow, adequate abdominal perfusion pressure to the viscera. The second group, which I'm actually seeing with increasing frequency, is secondary abdominal compartment syndrome. These are the patients that develop an increase in intraabdominal pressure for reasons that are commonly outside the abdomen. Um, patients that immediately come to mind are patients with sepsis, uh, patients with burns. We've we debated it long and hard, but I think many of us would consider pancreatitis, uh, because of its systemic inflammatory effects, to actually be a secondary abdominal compartment syndrome, even though the pancreas is an intra-abdominal organ. The debate
1: wasn't whether pancreatitis could cause it, but whether it was considered primary or secondary?
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Pancreatitis is a very common cause, uh, actually, of of abdominal compartment syndrome. And just, you know, as an aside, I've seen five patients this week with abdominal compartment syndrome, only one of which was due to trauma. Uh, The other four were uh, due to burns, due to pancreatitis, or in a OBGYN patient who developed significant uh, uh, sepsis following uh, a difficult delivery. Those four patients, we actually didn't open, and it was only the trauma patient who really had primary abdominal compartment syndrome that actually had an abdominal decompression performed. The other four, we actually managed by doing a paracentesis in each case and leaving a catheter in place to drain the fluid off, and that's the big difference between primary uh, and secondary abdominal compartment syndrome uh, is that frequently the secondary abdominal compartment syndrome is due to a... Uh, transudation of fluid, resuscitation fluid, or otherwise into the abdominal cavity, and there's simply a space occupying lesion that, if one removes that, even if it's a small amount of fluid, one can very frequently drop the intra abdominal pressure rather significantly and restore adequate perfusion. So, one of the things that we're really trying to emphasize is that you don't have to always open a patient's abdomen. Uh, if they develop abdominal compartment syndrome. And this is one of the reasons that I think many clinicians are reluctant to look for this or to treat it because they're afraid that they're going to have to open the patient's abdomen and they they would prefer not doing
1: that. Well, this is absolutely, absolutely fascinating. I assume this is uh, it's certainly not a standard of care, but you're doing research to see if this is uh, as effective. I mean, this is great because you would be able to, I'd be able to work with my surgeons, look for it aggressively and say, okay, fine, I'm not pushing this patient to either have a bedside or go back to the OR, but let's just maybe see if we can send the patient to IR to have some drainage of fluid, which you know would be much less of a procedure, obviously.
2: Well, there, there are really... Again, looking at the whole evolution of this, we used to watch intra pressures until they got up in the 30s and 40s before we opened patients. We now know that that was a huge mistake. We've actually redefined the grades of intra hypertension uh, such that what used to be called a grade 2 intra hypertension is now a grade 4. We would recommend that patients not be allowed to have bladder pressures above 25 Uh, without some form of intervention being performed. Uh, We know that the kidneys, uh, the liver, the gut, take a hit with intra-abdominal pressures uh, beginning in about the 10 to 15 millimeter of mercury range. Basically, we're dealing with intra-abdominal pressures earlier Uh, And we've recognized that there are some non-surgical modalities that can be incorporated. Uh, Things as simple as placing an NG tube on suction to decompress the upper GI tract, putting a rectal tube to decompress the lower GI tract, uh, using neostigmine uh, and other uh, coloprokinetics uh, to try and evacuate uh, air. Uh, from the bowel. I had a patient uh, a few weeks ago who uh, required intubation, was aggressively bag mask ventilated, and developed compartment syndrome solely because his entire GI tract was full of air. I was asked to open the patient's abdomen. Instead, I put an NG tube in, put a rectal tube in, and within a, a matter of an hour and a half, the patient's bladder pressure was down from the 40s uh, to the teens.
1: So there's two, two major issues. One is sort of turning down the thermostat as to what is a concerning intra-abdominal pressure, which, I mean, again, working closely with surgeons and, and everybody involved in the critical, surgically-critically ill, that's a very important issue piece of information. And then secondly, that there are uh, inventive and original ways that might not necessitate surgery to try and treat that. So you're in no way advocating not looking for elevated abdominal pressures, but rather that there can be ways other than surgery to treat them.
2: Correct. And what, what we've realized over the years is that if one waits until the bladder pressures are higher, mortality is higher. We actually uh, showed this in a study six, seven years ago, where over a two-year period, the first year we observed one threshold, and the second year we lowered the threshold of when we would open the patient's abdomen, and the mortality was significantly lower the second year. If you look for it aggressively, you intervene earlier, patients do better, they have fewer organ failures, and they survive at a higher percentage uh, than if you delay things. So I think starting earlier to look for it, intervening earlier, uh, will lead to to a better patient outcome.
1: There are two other areas to sort of follow up on that. The first is, is there, uh, along this line of research, are you going to be seeing if patients who may have had primary uh, abdominal compartment syndrome can be managed non-surgically? And second of all, maybe along those lines, I know you've been involved in some research looking at the sort of purely medical patient, and I really think that is worth emphasizing some of those uh, important areas there.
2: The World Society of Abdominal Compartment Syndrome is, is preparing uh Two, two things right now. Number one is we are creating um, resuscitation algorithms uh, for intraabdominal hypertension and abdominal compartment syndrome that uh, should soon be up on our website to help clinicians and, and nurses kind of get a better handle on what the various therapeutic options are. It's not anymore a matter of if intraabdominal pressure is elevated cut the abdomen open. It's much more comprehensive than that. There are many more treatment options. The second thing that the World Society, I think, has done an excellent job with is pointing out that this is not a disease of trauma. It's seen throughout critically ill patients. It's seen in medical patients, perhaps even to a greater extent than in surgery. Uh, Dr. Manu Malbrain, the president of the society, has done some phenomenal work in Europe uh, estimating the actual incidence uh, of abdominal compartment syndrome and intra-abdominal hypertension. And it actually rivals the incidence of sepsis and septic shock uh, with regard to incidence and with regards to mortality. This is definitely something that is occurring in our ICUs, uh, but unfortunately it's not being recognized in many patients.
1: Uh, one of the other ter- uh, topics that I wanted to discuss with you was, uh, again, so someone like myself, one of the converted, I believe in this, I am looking for it aggressively. But sometimes uh, the same nurse or at the change of shift, someone who may have had high bladder pressure suddenly doesn't. And you obviously have much more experience with this than I do. And can you share perhaps some practical issues uh, of, of following bladder pressures in patients like this, how to, how to tell uh, some of the problems?
2: Well, you've uh, also hit a nail on the head with regard to an area that um, is our primary focus right now with the World Society, and that is how do you measure bladder pressure? You know, we have to start at the beginning. There are a number of different techniques that are out there. Much of it, much of the concern, I think, on our part is how do you zero the transducer? Where do you zero it? Uh, Obviously, it should be zeroed uh, at the level of the bladder if you're measuring Bladder pressure, but what is that level? We all know where we would normally zero a transducer uh, to be able to measure CVP or wedge. Uh, We use the flevostatic axis. As long as the patient is supine and flat in bed, the flevostatic axis should be pretty much equivalent to the midpoint of the bladder. The problem is, however, we now recognize that we really need to be elevating the head of our patient's beds to at least 30 degrees help produce ventilator-associated pneumonia. Right. Just elevating the head of the bed applies a pressure to the abdomen and increases intra-abdominal pressure, and it also changes the zero point of the bladder.
1: It may be actually elevated because of the changing. It's not that they're doing something wrong. It may be that the pressures have actually changed.
2: It's, absolutely. And so one of the things that I've been doing for the last two weeks is doing uh, intra-abdominal pressure measurements on all of my patients and measuring them in both uh, a supine as well as a 30-degree position. There is some very preliminary data that uh, is actually uh, in preparation for publication by some authors that shows that there is a significant elevation in intra-abdominal pressure solely by changing the position of the bed. So what the World Society is putting together is a multi-center international trial to try and best define how we should be measuring intra-abdominal pressure, and that's something we're just going to all have to stay tuned to find out what the answer will be.
1: There was some recent debate that you and your other members of the Society were having. Did you want to talk a little bit about that now, what the content was?
2: Sure. Well, one of those issues is exactly as we were just discussing, how, how where are we going to zero... Um, our transducers. Many uh, people, I think, misunderstand how to measure bladder pressure. Many physicians and nurses will place the transducer up on top of the pubic symphysis. The reality is that in most patients, that is probably 8 to 10 centimeters higher than the midpoint of the bladder. Uh, And so you you get erroneous uh, pressure measurements. One of the things that we have been advocating recently is if the patient is supine, uh, go ahead and use the flea with static axis because this is what we're all familiar with with regards to zeroing pressures for, pressure transducer for hemodynamic monitoring. And if your ICU is one where you prefer to keep the patients elevated, the, the head of the bed elevated, that is, uh, probably the best position to be using for right now until we can uh, further delineate whether there's a better option is to use the uh, mid axillary line at the level of the iliac crest. Basically, that should be uh, equivalent to the midpoint of the bladder, regardless of the position that the patient is in. Uh, if there's any concern over accuracy of bladder pressure measurements, the safest thing to do is put the patient supine uh, and measure the bladder pressure with his, with a transducer zeroed at the, or, well, at the mid-axillary the mid or the flevostatic axis. That should give you uh, an accurate measurement. But that is uh, perhaps the area that we're debating currently. The next uh, area of debate, uh, and one that I suspect we will move into fairly soon, is uh, a multicenter international prospective randomized trial of uh, management of abdominal compartment syndrome uh, to include both medical and surgical options to see which patients benefit best from each modality.
1: I wanted to spend a few minutes to let you talk about your website, and I just want to give that address, www.wsacs.org. I found it to be very helpful, and I sort of had a couple of questions. The first is, is, does it have any relationship with SCCM? I mean, these patients are almost always critically ill, and that's one question. And the second is, maybe if you could talk a little bit about the history of this entity, and uh, you mentioned some of the projects that uh, it is involved in, maybe some of the other ones, and, and how people can get involved
2: certainly the the world society on abdominal compartment syndrome uh was founded in december of 2004 um at uh, the world congress meeting that was held in australia it was uh, for me a, a wonderful meeting because it included uh, physicians of all disciplines uh, as well as nurses and respiratory therapists all of whom had an interest in this uh and uh, all of the abstracts from that meeting can be viewed on the website by the way All of the lectures that were given can also be viewed. The PowerPoint presentations can be viewed on the website. Uh, It was a wonderful meeting in which we worked on these consensus definitions. uh, And uh, membership is open to anyone who has an interest in it. Um, One can find uh, details of how to join uh, there on the website. Um, Our next meeting will be in 2007 in April, uh, excuse me, in March, um, in uh, Brussels in Belgium. Um, and uh, we're we're encouraged and excited by what the society uh, is uh, hopefully going to be able to accomplish. Our primary goal is education um, and facilitating uh, research and discussion on this for people who have an interest in uh, this uh, disease process. Uh, there's an email list server that you can sign up for uh, that is. Uh, uh, Basically, populated by most of the uh, world's experts, if you will, on this. Uh, So, it's an open forum for discussion of cases and and clinical problems. We also uh, maintain a a database uh, that you can search that includes uh, not only Medline referenced articles, but also non published abstracts, uh, manuscripts, uh, things like that from around the world. Uh, And our hope is to have a clearinghouse of all. Available data on intraabdominal hypertension and abdominal compartment syndrome, so that if someone is interested in a particular question or interested in studying this, they have one place to go to to be able to obtain that information.
1: One of the other areas, and, and we're getting towards the end of the interview, and uh, you can help me if I'm not wording this right. But as an intensivist, I'm pretty comfortable that I know what to do. If I am con- if I feel a patient has abdominal compartment syndrome or impending issues in that area, I work closely with my surgeons. We have big discussions and decide what to do. But what do you do per se if they have different grades of intra-abdominal hypertension? What do you, as someone who knows a lot about this, do when you're working uh, with the nurses and the patient at the bedside as you're seeing that they have the different grades of intra-abdominal hypertension? What, uh, do you diurese the patients? Are there some uh, things you can share with us about that?
2: it depends on what is causing it. If it is primary, um, uh, if the etiology is a primary uh, etiology such as trauma where um, either organs are swollen or uh, the viscera are swollen, there's a large retroperitoneal hematoma, for example, I have a very low threshold to leave those patients open if they go to the operating room Uh, because that way the patients don't have the increased intra-abdominal pressure. They're more likely to resolve their edema Uh, and after a a couple of days, as the edema resolves, you can go back to the operating room, close the abdomen primarily, and you're done. Uh, If you closed that patient initially, their stay in the ICU is longer. They tend to have more organ dysfunction. Uh, They tend to take much longer uh, for uh, their organ dysfunction to improve because of the constant elevations in intraabdominal pressure. If it's a patient that has a secondary etiology, Uh, such as uh, ascites or um, blood within the abdomen or something like that, I will think about either putting a catheter uh, into the abdomen uh, to try and remove that fluid, which is very effective, or uh, one can consider paralyzing the patient to reduce muscle tone and decrease pressures, uh, especially for patients uh, that... um, uh, such as burn patients that have uh, uh, thick eschar. I've done escharotomies on burn patients to try and decrease their intra-abdominal pressure fairly effectively. So, uh, Or patients that uh, are fluid overloaded, uh, one can diurese them. One really has to look at the etiology to determine what the options are, and there are both medical options as well as surgical options, as we've discussed, uh, such that uh, one really has a number of different uh, therapeutic options uh, uh, strategies that you can use from your armamentarium. And it's important that clinicians understand all those options and that this isn't just an open the abdomen or nothing phenomenon.
1: So to try and summarize your, your major take-home points from your article in Critical Connections and some of your important work, um, it's look for elevated intra-abdominal pressures, look for the abdominal compartment syndrome, or work closely, if, you, if you're not a surgeon with your surgeons, to treat it, that there may be ways of treating it that don't necessitate opening the abdomen, and that think about it in patients where you might not think of it, such as medical patients, right?
2: I don't think I could have said it better.
1: As is probably obvious to everybody listening, I could talk to you for a few more hours, but I think we're running out of time. We've been speaking today with Dr. Michael Cheatham, from the Orlando Regional Medical Center. He's the director of the trauma ICU there, and he's been speaking with us about the exciting topic of the abdominal compartment syndrome. Thank you very much, Michael, for being with us today.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: This concludes our podcast for Friday, March 3rd, 2006. Look for future podcasts featuring a wide variety of information important to critical care practitioners, including interviews with authors and discussions with prominent members of the critical care community. Critical Connections is the official bi-monthly news magazine of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, offering the latest information about critical care to healthcare professionals. Members of the Society of Critical Care Medicine receive a free subscription as well as other benefits. For more information, visit www.sccm.org. Thanks again for listening. Stay up to date on advancements in the critical care profession
0: by attending the Society of Critical Care Medicine's new educational series, Critical Care Academy, giving you tools to increase your critical care skills and knowledge. Critical Care Academy features the adult and pediatric multi-professional critical care review courses on July 18th through the 22nd, 2006. Prior to the review courses, take part in the new clinical strategies and skills simulation in pediatric critical care or the expanded American Board of Internal Medicine Critical Care Self-Evaluation Process Module Review on July 16th through 17th to enhance your board review process. Tailor your learning experience to suit your specific needs at one convenient location, saving you time and money. Register today to guarantee your course selections by speaking with a SCCM customer service representative at 1-847-827-6888 or visit www.sccm.org.